right, welcome to day 331 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Daniel 2.24 through 3.12, Psalm 135, and 2 Peter 1. Okay, so we're kind of in the middle of the Daniel stories in the beginning. Um, this happened yesterday and today, and it all also happened between today and tomorrow, but the reading plan kind of, I, I guess, for for lack of a better way to do it, kind of cuts these in half. So uh, as you saw yesterday, we have this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, and he demands that his wise men or the enchanters or the diviners, whoever it may be, those who specialize in things like dream interpretation, tell him not only the what the meaning of his dream is, which of course is easy because you could just kind of make up whatever you want, but what the dream was. And um, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, becomes very outraged at the fact that no one is willing to take him up on this challenge. Uh, and then Daniel has um, beseeches the Lord in prayer, or he has his, his companions do this, and um, then the Lord does indeed reveal to him what he is to say to the king. And so he comes into Ariok, who is the king's captain, um, as we saw in 2.15, whom had been whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon and he comes up to him and he says do not destroy the wise men of Babylon which is an interesting thing for Daniel to say right because he doesn't care just for himself and his friends but for everyone else even though we might be able to say well these guys are rank sinners these guys are um practicing all kinds of omen reading and divination and things like that isn't that stuff bad but no Daniel has care for them and their lives as well and he says, bring me in before the king, I will show the interpretation. And so he does. He brings him in before the king in haste, right? There's, the, the decree has gone out, and there is, uh, there is a sense of urgency here. And Aryok tells, uh, tells the king, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And then Nebuchadnezzar, with what you can uh, imagine might be a fair bit of skepticism, like, is this guy just coming in to save his own skin? He declares to Daniel, and we're reminded of his of his name in Babylon, Beltetshazzar, uh, are you able to make me to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Let's not forget what the challenge is here, right? Notice our yoke had said, He'll make known the interpretation, and the king is like, just so you know, <clears throat> this is uh, what is expected. And so Daniel answers, look, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or, astrologies, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that you've asked for, but you know who can. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days so that this, this is a dream of the future. So he tells him, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And again, emphasizing that it is God who reveals the mysteries. Now, this is the second time he's, he's saying this, that this is given by God. This is not because I'm special, certainly not because anybody else is special. It's because God has chosen to, to reveal something to you, and he has given me uh, the understanding to make it known what is to be. So again, this is a dream uh, that concerns the future. And then once more in verse 30, we once again see this humility, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to you. 
And so here is what you saw. So this is the thing Nebuchadnezzar is asking for. This is the money here. You saw, O king, a great image. Okay, so the image here is a statue, um, image, the same term, selim, that we see uh, used throughout the Bible for, you know, statues, often idols, but of course, human beings in the image of God, selim. It's a statue. And it was, as visions often are, exceedingly bright and frightening to him. And he tells him the head of the image, this statue, was of fine gold, Zehav Tov. And then as you work your way down this statue, the material it's made, it's made out of materials becomes poorer and poorer. So next you get an arm, arms and chest of silver, <clears throat> its middle and thighs of bronze, feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And then you looked and a stone was cut out and that stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then all, and then as kind of like a chain reaction, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, notice how it works its way back up, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff on the sum, uh, of the summer on threshing floors. Like all these, the, these precious metals just blown away by the wind so that not a trace of them could be found. But that stone, the one cut by no human human hand, um, it was fine. And in fact, more than fine, it became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. So now having disclosed him the content of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar knows he's the real deal. And so now his ears are going to be open for its interpretation. So he says, you, O king, the king of kings, Melech Malchiah in Aramaic, um, to whom the God of heaven has given the power, the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, uh, into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, children of man, beasts of the fields, birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. And that, that of course, would have been very flattering to the king. Oh, my goodness. The, the, the gods have seen fit to depict me as a head of gold. How special. Right and but Daniel too is very clear in whose hand sovereignty belongs. Remember, and this is going to be a recurring theme throughout Daniel. It is the God of Heaven, the same one who is giving this interpretation. Okay, remember verse twenty-eight. There is a God in Heaven who reveals mystery. Well, that very God of Heaven has given you all that you have: your kingdom, your power, your might, and your glory, and He's given into your hand human beings as well as animals. This, of course, comes as no surprise to us who have been uh, reading through the prophets and seeing, especially Ezekiel and Jeremiah, portraying Nebuchadnezzar in this way. Um, and then he tells him, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. That, of course, corresponds with the chest of, and arms of silver. And then a third kingdom, a kingdom of bronze, which would be the middle and of the midsection and the thighs, which shall rule over all the earth. And then finally, a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Um, and as you saw the feet and the toes, it shall be a divided kingdom. Some of and some of the furnace, firmness of iron shall be in it, but also some of it shall be partly uh, brittle. So, right, like dried clay is. Uh, they will mix with one another in marriage. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And then, so you've got these, these four kingdoms now set up. 
the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, which in reality then becomes iron and clay. And then the God of heaven, this same God who gave you the power, the same God who's giving the interpretation now, uh, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. So that is the rock, right? It's it's carved by no human hand. God is the one who brings this kingdom about in a way that he hasn't brought the others about, right? Because there is the acknowledgement here that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms. He is the one, after all, who's given Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom, power, and might, and glory. So so it isn't as if this kingdom is brought to, uh, to be by God, but the others aren't, of course. Rather, that this one is in line with his eternal purposes for humanity. This is what all these other kingdoms are making way for, and it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms. It's not just going to arise after them, it's actually going to destroy them and bring them to an end, but it will stand forever. Um, and he And then he finishes up, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure." So what we see here is the first vision of the future that comes through Daniel. Technically, right, it's it's seen by Nebuchadnezzar. The interpretation is given by Daniel and then recorded in the book that bears his name. And when we consider the history of the ancient Near East, uh, several things in this make a lot of sense. So obviously, the golden head is is Babylon, right? And we know that. That's at least Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And then what comes after him is the Medo-Persian Empire, which, of course, uh, as I've mentioned a, a bunch of times, is um, begins under the domain of Cyrus the Great. So that would be the arms uh, and chest of silver. And then after that, the midsection and thighs of bronze would then be Greece, right? Alexander comes and he 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 conquers um, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire in 332 BC, and then for about 185 years until 146, when the remnants of his empire are defeated at Carthage, and the Roman Empire is established. And that's going to go till 325 AD, when it is divided between two power centers, one in the west and one in the east, and then the one in the west will continue till about 476, and then the one in the east will actually stand until about 1453. Now, if we accept this interpretation, it's not exactly clear at what point this stone carved by no human hand, of course, the, the kingdom of God, I think it's fair to say, uh, it's not clear exactly when it's indicating that this kingdom is shattered and broken, uh, perhaps putting specific dates on things. Uh, it, it, perhaps it's more ambiguous than that, not as specific as that. But that is kind of, uh, I think, the dominant view, and that's that's generally what I would go with. Although there are um, other um, interpretations of this, which uh, also deserve some mention. The other prominent one is what um, might be called the Greek view, or sometimes it's called the Maccabean view, suggesting that it is the the Jewish revolts um, under the the Maccabees, which um, are actually the, the the stone breaking into peace. This great empire. So under that understanding, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head. Everybody pretty much agrees on that. Uh, the text says that much. But then the arms and the chest, uh, the silver, would be the Median Empire, M-E-D-I-A-N. And then the, the, the thighs uh, and, and midsection 
the bronze would be Persia. So this is dividing the the Median Empire, Median Empire, and the Persian Empire into do two distinct things, which of course would make the legs slash feet of iron Greece. That would be Alexander the Great's empire, which does get divided um, towards the end there. The reason I find that view unpersuasive is that it seems to be consistent in the Old Testament that uh, Cyrus is is regarded as a Persian. Uh, you see him called this in Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23, as well in, as in Ezra, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 1 through 4. Uh, further, in the book of Daniel itself, Daniel seems to view the, uh, the, the Medes and the Persians as a united entity. For example, in chapter 6, verses 8 and 15, it speaks of the laws of the Medes and Persians. And then in chapter 8, verse 20, there's a vision of a ram with two horns, which it says are the kings of Media and Persia. So it does not seem that that Daniel envisions these as two different things. That's why I kind of stick with the, the first interpretation of it that I gave. I should also mention that there is another view that's kind of prominent that seeks to interpret this in light of solely what is in Daniel. So there, the head is Nebuchadnezzar, and then after that is the king that 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 is after him mentioned in the book, and that would be, be Belshazzar, and then after that would be King Darius, and then after that is Cyrus. The strength of this view is that on any account, it's a little difficult to see how... Um, how Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians could be viewed as superior to the Medo-Persians, right? Medo-Persians were way more powerful, had much a much longer and more glorious reign than than they did, uh, than the Babylonians did. And so, regarding the the Babylonians as gold and the Medo-Persians as uh, silver, seems a little bit weird. So for that reason, I would give that interpretation kind of second place uh, as the second most possible interpretation of this, although I do think there are some problems with this view, namely that Daniel's visions in general do not seem to stop at King Cyrus, so it would be more in line with some of the other stuff we see uh, taught in the book of Daniel. Um, he does seem to push a lot of this stuff pretty far in the future. So again, I do favor the first view that I mentioned, uh, that is uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's response to all this is quite impressive and shocking, frankly. Uh, it says that he fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And the word that is translated, paid homage, is actually sagid, which is to worship in Aramaic. I don't think this means that Nebuchadnezzar is thinking that Daniel is some kind of divinity, but but probably is acknowledging the God um, whom Daniel represents. And then in line with that, he commands that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And then he acknowledges, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Also pretty amazing. Uh, remember that in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as king of kings. Here, this is apparently a, this appears to be an even higher designation than he would give to himself, right? So this is Nebuchadnezzar's first in the book of Daniel submission to the God of Judah, to Yahweh. And he has accepted Daniel's little theology lesson. He is the revealer of mysteries, and you've been been able to reveal this to me. I think 
by the way, that this should inform how we um, understand this Christological title that we find in Revelation 7, 4, 17, 14, and then most famously in 1916, where uh, Jesus, when he returns, is called Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That this title that so many uh, kings throughout history had attributed to themselves truly belongs to this one, truly belongs to Jesus. Uh, Daniel is also honored with um, high honors, great gifts. He is made ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Note the similarity to the Joseph story after the interpretation of dreams. This is similar to what, what Joseph receives. He is also made the chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. can only imagine what Daniel would have done as chief prefect of them. And also, his companions are acknowledged as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego are... Um, are, are placed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, and Daniel uh, remains in the king's court. And then we get to the next story in chapter 3. Again, we'll, we'll be stopping in the middle of this story, but um, Nebuchadnezzar nevertheless makes an image of gold. Okay, so he is, you know, the, Nebuchadnezzar's got these moments where he kind of comes to his senses and, and seems to be grasping at the truth, like what he just did, but you know, should be no surprise for all of us who struggle with sin. He goes back on that. And so he makes an image of gold, and this thing is huge, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and he sets it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And uh, we can't be exactly sure what is meant by the plain of Dura. Durum is the Akkadian word for a wall or a fortress. Um, and, um, and then he commands pretty much all any official that one could speak of, the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and in case we missed any others, all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image, which I think it's fair to say would have involved sacrifices and, and things of that sort. And they stand before the image and... Um, a, a herald for the king proclaims, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of horn, pipe, lyre, trigone, I think that's how you pronounce that, harp, bagpipe, probably not what we're thinking of when we think of bagpipes, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Kim Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Okay, so a couple things here. First of all, notice the peoples, nations, and languages who are to worship this false god. Well, a Revelation partakes of very similar um, language when it shows, uh, when we were shown a vis vision of heaven and the, the throne room of God, and um, praise is directed to the Lamb. And in chapter 5, verse 9, uh, they uh, praise him as the, as the one who ransomed with his blood every tribe, language, people, and nation. So Daniel, we'll, we'll go with the Greek translation here, has every ethne, phule, and glossa. Some rough translations here, ethne uh, being nation, every nation, phule meaning tribe, and glossa meaning language. In Revelation, they're praising the one who has ransomed every ethne, nation, phule, tribe, Glosa, language, and Laos, people. 
So there is a plausible connection between those two texts with a pretty interesting um, implication, right? That those who worship the image, right? God, Jesus has come and ransomed his own from that group, from that group of people who used to be idolaters, now are ransomed and by him and are praising him forever and ever. And if we wonder about that additional term, laos, people, because it says peoples as well, I think the idea here is that uh, it's kind of like one-upping the language that's in here in Daniel. But at any rate, that's what they're supposed to do. When they hear this music, they're to worship this thing. And whoever does not is to be cast immediately into a burning, fiery furnace. Uh, quite possible this would have been the furnace used to make this image. What I've read is that this would have been uh, kind of think of, it was described as like a, a milk bottle, uh, like kind of those old school milk bottles, you know, like a vase with uh, the ore fed into the top and then the 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 stuff that burns, the wood and the coal and all that fed in through the bottom. Note that in a bit, they will be looking into this thing and they probably would have been looking in through, through that hole in the bottom. A bit of an interesting parallel to this is uh, Jeremiah 29, 22, where two false prophets, Zedekiah and Ahab, uh, we learn that the king of Babylon, quote, roasted them in the fire. Uh, so similar fate will befall anybody who doesn't prostrate themselves between this image. And um, and so, not surprisingly, everyone in attendance there that day fell down and worshipped the golden image. But there are a few exceptions, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego. Daniel, interestingly, is not a part of this story. I don't think that the implication is that he 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 went and worshipped it. It's just that the, the focus switches to his companions. There will be a, this is a moment of bravery for them, and they and he and Daniel is given his own moment for bravery in chapter six. Um, but interestingly, we're not actually told by the narrator that they didn't do this. Instead, uh, it's almost like we should expect that they didn't do this. And we find out about it actually by learning about certain Chaldeans who ratted on them. So they come and declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. <clears throat> you, O king, have made a decree. And then they remind him of what it was, as if he needs a reminder. Uh, well, guess what? These three Jews, it calls them, Yehudaye in, in Aramaic, Shadrach, Meshach, and Avednego, these three men have paid no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And we will find out the conclusion to that story tomorrow. But for now, let's go now to Psalm 135. Okay, Psalm 135. Uh, we've kind of gotten used to these shorter psalms. This one, of course, is a bit longer. We are now out of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, and it begins, praise Yahweh, praise the name of Yahweh. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, um, who stand in the house of God, in the courts of the house of our God. And that does remind me of a psalm we saw the other day, which is uh, Psalm 134, which you might recall um, was a call to bless Yahweh, all the servants of Yahweh who stand by night in the house of Yahweh. And so here, um, maybe this is directed exclusively to priests, uh, and certainly the reference to the house of Aaron and the house of Levi who are called upon to bless Yahweh in verses 19 and 20, that would suggest that this psalm is directed particularly at the priests and the Levites. 
And so they are commanded to praise God. They are commanded to praise Yahweh, uh, to sing to his name. Notice praising and singing here being very um, being used almost synonymously. Um, for he is good. And, and why is he good? Because he has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. So they are celebrating their election, the fact that God would call them to be his people. And then it goes to uh, first person in verse 5, for I know that Yahweh is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Very similar to what we heard Nebuchadnezzar saying. This, of course, is one of those passages where, you know, you're like, well, is this saying that these other gods are real and God is just higher than them, or is, um, you know, or is this just a way of speaking? And uh, we've certainly looked at texts in the in the past where I, I kind of lean towards the latter. In fact, I lean towards the latter quite a bit, that this is simply a manner of speaking, um, or, it, you know, the implication could be that one of the ways in which God is, of course, greater than the false gods whom the nations falsely worship is that Yahweh actually exists. And not only does he exist, but all of these things are true of him. What kinds of things? Well, Yahweh does whatever he pleases, okay? Whatever he pleases, he does, which I think is a is a good way to kind of frame the concept of omnipotence, right? Sometimes we say like, well, that means that God can do anything, okay? Well, but then you start getting all these qualifications. Well, he can't sin, he can't lie, he can't do anything that's against his own nature, right? So you start so the the idea of what anything is keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, which I don't think is a bad thing, right? It's not bad that God can't do evil. Um but that's just not the best way I think to frame omnipotence. So I think maybe something more like he cannot fail to do whatever he desires to do. So whatever his will is to do, the Lord can do no problem. I think that's a much better kind of uh, category or way to think about the concept of God's omnipotence. And notice that this applies to all creation in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. And then, for example, he controls the weather. He makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain, and he brings forth wind from his storehouses. Then it goes specifically to God's act in, acts in history. So it talks about the 10th plague, the striking down of the firstborn of Egypt, um, as well as just generally sending signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Notice the, the servants, uh, right? We, we, the ones who are praising him are the servants of Yahweh. And by contrast, he judged Pharaoh and his servants. Uh, and then talking about the entry into the land, struck down many nations, killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, remember these guys, Og, king of Bashan, and then the kingdoms of Canaan. So that, of course, that, that stuff covered in De Deuteronomy and the, the, the book of Joshua, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Yahweh, verse 13, endures forever. Your renown or your remembrance, O Yahweh, throughout all ages. For Yahweh will vindicate his people. There the verb is Dean, from which we get the name Dan from, the tribe of Dan, um, which means to judge, but could also mean to plead one's cause, which probably is the, uh, the idea here. Yahweh will plead the cause of his people, and he is definitely one whom you want in, his cor in your corner. However, given the next line, it might make sense. Judgment might make sense here, right? Because he will have compassion on his servants. So he judges you, 
and yet he has compassion on you. And then we get into a couple interesting verses here, in particularly because of their similarity to Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Now, we've already seen one similarity. Um, I didn't point it out, but in verse 6, Psalm 115.3, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does um, in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. This idea, whatever Yahweh pleases, he does, that we've already seen in Psalm 115.3. But here we have a run that is uh, almost identical to Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, in this criticism of the idols of the nations, which of course sounds like a bunch of stuff we've also seen in the prophets. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. The only difference there is that Psalm 115 ends it with, uh, instead of, nor is there any breath in their mouth, they have noses, but do not smell. Um, They're appropriate to gods because when you offer them sacrifices, they're supposed to smell the pleasing aroma, just like Yahweh actually does. and then this insightful line in verse 18, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them, uh, which is an interesting insight in terms of like our own idolatry that you kind of become like the things you I- idolize. But here, if you want to be very specific about the meaning and context, and I think I pointed this out in Psalm 115, um, the, the specific way in which we become like them is that we end up with mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear. This, of course, being a criticism of those who fail uh, to heed the Word of God. We see that criticism in Jeremiah, we see that criticism in Isaiah, I think Isaiah chapter 6, and Jesus even picks up that kind of language when he speaks, all who have ears to hear, let them hear. And then we come to the last stanza, which is also in Psalm 115, verses 9 through 10. O house of Israel, bless Yahweh. Although in Psalm 115, it's not bless, but it's trust in. O house of Aaron, bless Yahweh. O house of Levi, bless Yahweh. Again, remember, I, I suggested that this might be focused, uh, like directed at priests. You who fear Yahweh, bless Yahweh. And then finally, blessed be Yahweh from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. And then it caps it off the same way it started off with a nice inclusio, praise Yahweh. Okay, let's go now to the book of 2 Peter. We are now in chapter 1. So I should probably begin this by uh, just saying a few words about the contested authorship of 2 Peter. So for quite many years now, uh, there are many who have doubted whether Peter— uh, actually wrote this letter. This is not the only letter in the in the New Testament, of course, uh, where there is questions as to whether or not the uh, the person to whom the writing is attributed actually wrote it. I will say that the question I think is more important in letters like this, which actually have an author named in it, right? So like Take like the four gospels, right? Like they never technically name their authors, whereas in a lot of the letters, they do. Okay. Like Hebrews would be an exception to that. <clears throat> so I think it's more important when the text is actually claiming um claiming who wrote it. Now, the two um big objections to Petrine authorship, authored by Peter, that is, is that number one, um, its language is very different from first Peter. Um, its style is very different from First Peter. There's a lot of really um, kind of high Hellenistic terminology 
that is used in this letter, uh, which some might go on and say is is probably not owing to the education level of a of a Galilean fisherman, um, and is certainly different than First Peter. Um, also, there's a lot of similarities to Jude, and there are also a lot of you know scholars who would say that that Jude is a is a lot from a much fa- later phase in the first century. So if Second Peter is dependent on that, it must be quite a bit later. I should say that this is typically associated with you know critical scholar, critical New Testament scholarship. Although I do not want to say that number one, that say evangelicals or however you might want to say it, right, could not, are not also critical. I think you you can't just slap a label on something and talk about oh how scholarly is it is you. Uh, evangelicals who accept the authorship of all the letters in the New Testament as as they are written uh, can be just as rigorous and often are with the data as everybody else is. And so if what we mean by critical is that they look at the text with a critical eye and are honest about it, well, I think that everybody is, and you have to just consider the arguments themselves and not just try to label people. I just, for the sake of for the sake of explaining this, I have to use some kind of designation for it, and that's just kind of what popped in, into my head. I also don't want to give the assumption that um, only unbelieving scholars think this, right? Like that you only think this if you have a quote-unquote low view of Scripture. Um, there are arguments that are made about the, the validity of what are called pseudonymous letters. So this is the idea, right? So what is pseudonymous? Pseudonymous means... Um, that it is falsely attributed to an author, that that it is written in an author's name or perhaps as if an author wrote it, but he's not actually the one who wrote it. And so some would argue that this was an accepted form of letter writing or literature in the first century and that it would not have been taken as deceptive. Um, because if you look in this letter, the he clearly it wants it is the the author is presenting himself as Peter. There are incidents in his life that uh, un, seem to be unmistakably, yeah, he's saying this this is Peter, right? Um, he is now he also says in chapter three verse one that this is now the second letter I am writing to you, which almost certainly has um, in mind First Peter as the first letter. So uh, scholars who are who are open to the idea that Peter was not the author of this letter and yet still want to maintain um, Scripture as God's word, for example, would probably argue something like, yes, it is pseudonymous, but the early church kind of just accepted this as a valid and as a valid thing. Like they all knew what was going on and nobody was deceived by it. It's just. Um, you know, they, they would have said, oh, yeah, this is a, some kind of writer or community writing uh, in Peter's name or something like that. I personally do not subscribe to that kind of reasoning. It does seem to me that that would be um, thought to be deceptive, and I think there's fairly good evidence that um, authorship was indeed important to them and that, and that letters that are falsely attributed were not uh, accepted by early Christians, especially as Scripture. And although Second Peter did not find immediate unanimous consensus among all the churches as being part of uh, part of Scripture, it clearly is regarded as such by many within the early church. I might go into this in more detail in a future episode of Journey Through Scripture Read. It seems like a valid topic, but I do just want to say a few more things um, in in favor of how I see this. 
I do not see the arguments against Petrine authorship to be particularly persuasive. So, for example, like when we talk about differences in style, some things that are pointed out are that like 1 Peter um, uh, 1 7 talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, you know, Jesus' second coming, whereas 2 Peter calls it his parousia, his coming or his, his presence, right? Does that seem like that big of a difference? Another example is that First uh, Peter one nine speaks of uh, of of our hope as the redemption of our souls, whereas in Second Peter one eleven it talks of it as entry into the eternal kingdom. It, are we saying that Peter can only call it one thing? Like it just it it kind of seems just very very nitpicky. And now there is no doubt that Second Peter does have significantly different style and uh, significantly higher vocabulary than 1 Peter does. But I think we have to uh, keep in mind that, number one, we have a very, very small sampling of works written by Peter. So to take the five chapters of 1 Peter and say, based on this, we can determine, quote-unquote, how Peter wrote, I think that that is, you know, a, a little bit, again, premature. Secondly, I think a lot of, if not all, these differences can be accounted for by the possibility, or we might even want to say probability, that Peter may have used scribes or secretaries or other forms of assistance in the composition of one of, if not both, of his letters. In fact, if, if we want to uh, make assumptions based on his background as a Galilean fisherman— Perhaps it's plausible to say that that's really how he wrote his letters and the fact that he's using, maybe he wrote first and and had an assistant for second, or maybe he had assistants for both. Um, Remember the tradition that Mark represents Peter's telling of the gospel. Could it be perhaps that there's a reason why Mark, while we have a gospel of Mark rather than a canonical gospel of Peter, did Mark play the role in this kind of thing? Also, I know that yesterday when we looked at 1 Peter 5.12, I suggested that Silvanus was the guy who carried the letter, but it's also quite possible that he's the guy who assisted Peter in the writing of this letter. So we might even have um, an amanuensis of some sort um, named in one of the letters. And we know that scribes in the ancient world or secretaries or assistants in letter writings, um, they, they varied in terms of how involved they were. Like, for some, it may have been simple dictation, I say this, you write this. For others, it could have been just full-on helping compose. There are other instances, I wouldn't suggest this in the case of Second Peter, where um, they were just told to write something, and if the guy to whom the letter is attributed wanted to sign off on it, sure, go ahead, put my name on it. The fact of the matter is that we don't know, and there are a lot of plausible um, explanations or anything that somebody might want to come up with, um, assuming even that the differences in letters are not um, the result of the imaginations of the people who have come up with these theories. So I didn't plan on talking about that for so much, and I'm sorry if I made the episode longer than it needed to be because of that, but I do find this conversation interesting, and you know, you get involved long enough in, in ministry and church and things like that, and you might hear things like this. And so I just wanted to give like a brief overview of my thoughts on this issue. Okay, speaking of the author, uh, he is identified in the first verse as Simeon Peter, which is a, a what we're not we're not used to that, right? We're used to him being called Simon Peter. 
um, the, both of which are ways to transliterate into Greek the Hebrew name Shimon, which is the tribe of Simeon, right, the, the son of Jacob, Simeon. This is probably, in fact, I think it's safe to say, definitely the most common male name in Palestine in the first century, and it is spelled in more than one way. Uh, it's not beyond the realm of the probable that an author may have written his own name in two different ways, and this way, which is which we have in this letter, which is the more Hellenized version, would be pronounced Sumeon, and we do find it elsewhere in the New Testament. For example, the, that guy who blesses Jesus in the temple in Luke chapter 2, his name is spelled like this. Um, when the tribe is mentioned, I think every time, but I'm not sure, it, it's, it's written this way. Um, there in Antioch, there is a prophet slash teacher named this Acts thirteen one, and uh, James actually at the Jerusalem Council in Acts fifteen fourteen calls Peter Sumeon. So we shouldn't get too tripped up with that. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained, and I think this is wild, a faith of equal standing. This is Peter writing, and he's writing to Christians, everyday Christians like you and me, saying, you have a faith of equal standing of with ours, with mine, that may be an editorial we, or he may be referring to other apostles or other church leaders, but either way, right, that we have an equal standing in faith with Peter himself. Just amazing um, what, what God has done. Uh, by the and, and why do we have that standing? Well, we have it by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it is definitely tantalizing to maybe import some theology into that, right? Like that that Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, and so that gives us our equal standing, or perhaps, you know, his righteousness being like his obedience to the Father's plan or will. We just don't have a lot in the context to really say much about how that, the like, conceptually what's going on here, but it is owing to Jesus' righteousness one way or the other. Another interesting thing about this verse, this is actually one of the few places in the New Testament where Jesus is straightforwardly called God, and um, uh, we saw actually the identical thing in Titus 2.13 in one of Paul's letters, and there as here, uh, if you look at older English translations, uh, particularly anything that was uh, translated uh before 1798, so that would be like the King James Version, there is a grammatical rule that was not understood in that time called the Granville-Sharp Rule, where um, uh, essentially the idea is that in Greek, if you have the article, right, the word for the, and then a substantive, and then the word, like a noun, and then the word and, in Greek, chi, and then another substantive, and neither of those substantives is a proper name, but they are personal, then they refer to the same individual, okay? So here, so here, if you read the King James Version, right, it's our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, whereas it's actually, no, this is the same thing, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I know Jesus Christ is a personal name, but <clears throat> that's not the primary substantive. The idea is God and Savior, right? So God's one and Savior is the other. Hope you followed that. But it's like a little bit interesting history of translation on this verse. Um, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. He's going to make a lot about knowledge in this um, in this uh, opening chapter. 
he will he will also mention it in verse three, the very next verse, and um, and verse eight as well. So Jesus's divine power. Okay, again, strong hints of Jesus's deity here, right? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So anything that you need as a Christian, Jesus has given it to you. That doesn't mean that Jesus is going to give me anything that I want or wish for. No, it's anything that I need for life and godliness. And he's granted it through the, and here it is again, knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which, so speaking of that excellence, okay, he granted us his precious and very great promises. Okay, notice is your knowledge of God and specifically your knowledge of his promises is what, so, so knowing those well, right, equips us with all things pertaining to life and godliness so that through them, through these very great promises, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now, this is a fascinating concept. Um, the idea that uh, God has given us something of his nature in Christ, so something of, of, of who he is. And um, this concept kind of gets, you know, is connected to things like what Paul says in Ephesians 3 about being filled with the fullness of God. And, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to stamp down exactly what that means, to, to, to figure that out. Um, I think we we want to be careful not to imply that you know we are becoming gods and in fact this concept which you know I think it deserves a lot of respect in the history of theology uh is sometimes described with the word theosis and this is attributed uh, very much to Athanasius uh, a phrase that he uses uh where he says god became man so that man might become god and this is you know, upheld as like something very, very central to what salvation is, especially in like the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, but elsewhere as well. And I think to a degree, evangelicals, or I should probably say Protestants, uh, as well as Catholics, can affirm this as well. Although I think we need to be careful with it, right? Because even um, even the like the Orthodox who are very comfortable with that kind of language and will fully affirm like what Athanasius says are quick to point out that this is not like an ontological transfer of being, like that we're Mormons or something like that, that we are, that we are going to become gods, like in, in every sense that that God is God. Nevertheless, Ath- Athanasius's phrase, I think, if I could be a little bit bold, is a little bit sloppy to me. I, I ha- obviously have a, a ton of respect for him as a as an important theologian in the history of the church, and I think we all all owe him a lot. But um, you know th- that that way of putting it is not the way that scriptures put it. And you say that to the average person, and it does sound like it's ontological. So I prefer to stick with the way that scripture teaches us: filled with the fullness of God, um, partakers in the divine nature. Um, God gives us something of himself. And specifically, actually, if we really care about letting context define terms, we see here that this concept is primarily moral in nature. So look like look what he's look what he says. He says, You're partakers of divine nature, 
having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So like that's the sense in which we partake of divine nature. And we, again, we just need to be very careful about not going beyond what Scripture says. Um, and, and then he goes on with more moral language. For this very reason, and here's kind of like the center of chapter one, I think, uh, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and then virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So these are the Second Peter chapter 1 virtues, okay? So virtue itself, so faith, uh, virtue itself, that is, you know, loving what is good, uh, you know, uh, being possessing what is good, um, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And Peter, these are kind of like Peter's versions of the fruits of the Spirit, we might say. And notice that he, they're not, they don't just come uh, automatically. We need to make every effort to do this. So this is us working with God's grace. And you say, did you do that or did God do this, do that? You can give them the snarky answer, yes, because we both did, right? What does is, what is, uh, Paul say in, I think it's uh, Philippians chapter 2? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah, that's Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Okay, so <clears throat> um, so he says, if you've got these qualities and they are, and, and, and they are increasing— Okay, so you're not stagnant in your faith, but you're you keep increasing them and adding the ones ones to the other, perhaps. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful with that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ or in that knowledge that you have. Okay, here again that, that focus on knowledge that we saw in verse three and in verse two. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Right, so you're forgetting something that you should know, and if you knew it, then that knowledge would be producing these qualities. So what you believe very much affects who you are. How focused is your mind on what Christ has done for you? How focused are you on the fact that you have been cleansed? Okay, remember that. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. And here it is again. Right, make every effort verse uh, 5, and now here, uh, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And here, the word, I think we I think we could translate this, ratify it, like formally consent to, right? I've been cleansed, and yes, I am fully on board with being a cleansed, redeemed individual. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, or we might translate it, stumble. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. There he is, back on these qualities again. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, and I think it right that as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, he really wants us to focus on these qualities. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. That sounds a lot like an allusion to John 21, 18 through 19. Remember, I mentioned that he does mention things from his life. From Peter mentions things from his life. 
this sounds a lot like when Jesus says, you know, you used to go wherever you want to go, but when you're old, someone will stretch out your hands and bring you where you don't want to go. Um, and, you know, just looking around and maybe reading the tea leaves, Peter is aware, hey, I've been living with that this whole all this time, and I'm, and I'm aware that that day seems to be drawing near, even more so um, than, you know, living this life of a highly persecuted Christian in Jerusalem, right? Now, now it seems that things are, are, are getting to the point where, you know, he may go home to be with the Lord soon. And I will continue to make every effort so that after my departure, you may be at, able at any time to recall these things, right? And one of these efforts is the writing of this very letter itself. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about yet another event in his life, and that appears to be the transfiguration. Uh, you find that in Matthew 17, 1 through 5, Mark 9, 2 through 7, or Luke 9, 28 through 35. Notice that if I was right about that allusion to Jesus foretelling his death, now we've got all four Gospels that he's alluded to stuff that happens in them. I'm not saying that he's sitting there with like all four of them open, but it's interesting that uh, both the synop—he's got some stuff from the synoptics and some stuff from John in here. Um, so, when we received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory— this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is specifically the wording of, of what happens when Jesus is transfigured in Matthew 17, 5. Uh, they all say, this is my beloved son, the with whom I am well pleased is, is uh, specific to Matthew's account. Um, so we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so again, you know, very seems to be very clearly referencing the transfiguration here. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, right? Now that's interesting, right? Because they heard a voice from heaven, but Peter actually puts the prophetic word higher than that. And he says, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, right? So think the lights are off uh, and someone turns a lamp on or lights a lamp. That's going to be the only thing your eyes are drawn to. That's how it should be. We should be with the prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, okay? Until you are with the Lord. Um, it, apparently, this is a way of saying that. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture—now, this is important, right? Because he just talked about the prophetic word. He's not talking about just any prophetic word, and we know there were prophets in the times of the New Testament, but he's specifically talking about Scripture, okay? And that is actually a superior testimony to hearing a voice from heaven. Very interesting. Um, and none of that, none of that, none of what we have in Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, there's some question here. Does he mean the interpretation of prophets, like kind of what I'm doing in this podcast? Or is he talking, which I think is probably more, more probable, of the production of, um, you know, the prophet himself. And it, and it seems that way because of what he contrasts that with in verse 21, right? For no prophecy was ever produced by the produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? So that's, that is, you know, as opposed to one's own interpretation. So it does seem there that he means that the, the prophets were not just 
speaking off the cuff, and this wasn't just coming from their own minds. No, it's legit. They're hearing from God, and 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 producing written scripture. And the way that is that is done, we have a beautiful explanation of in the process of inspiration. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, that's it for today. Sorry for a little bit longer of an episode than we've been used to, but um, you know, I felt the need to talk about authorship. So uh, email me if you're dissatisfied. But hopefully you're not, because I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.